We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode will be concentrating on Israel and the history of spying inside the United States, in which gives them a, an advantage over most countries in regards how foreign policy views Israel in the future and in the current state. Spying upon the United States and vice versa, other countries in history have had a history of involving themselves without the acknowledgement of the State Department, countries such as the Soviet Union, Russia, China, Japan, Germany, countries that have a vested interest in the long term in regards to the future of the United States and the future of those countries in those specific areas of the world. However, it is Israel that commits the greater offense here as we consider Israel a beneficial ally that has similar interests as to our own. However, nothing could be further than the truth. The theological differences as well as the poignant differences in regards to foreign policy are readily seen. And I will give you a very general historical rundown about how this country came into power and how it became not just a formidable ally to the United States, but also a secret adversary. Besides Mother England, who endorsed the Balfour Declaration, which instituted that Palestine would be the home for the Jewish people, a state that would become a nation for Jews only, the United States would become its official staple to enforce this, uh, this declaration. Many European countries 
made their thoughts rather clear, uh, contrary to what the United States specified, that Judea was to be a home for Jews, not a state for Jews. Prime Minister of England, the late Neville Chamberlain, however, he knew different, and his thoughts about the future of Judea were simple that they will be, become a state which will enforce its own governance. And I'll quote, quote, if, as may well happen, that there should be created in our lifetime by the banks of the Jordan, a Jewish state under the protection of the British crown, which might comprise three or four millions of Jews, an event that will have occurred in the history of the world, which would, from every point of view, be beneficial. End quote. That quote was taken by Chamberlain in 1927. The, um, the, the investments made by the United States and countries like England and France and other countries were abundant. The Zionist Israeli influence in American journalism, uh, which pushed for the U.S. citizenry in full agreement for Jews to have a state, uh, a, a, um, a state in which they would enforce their own laws, which would not be deterred. Influential Zionists that resided inside the United States, like uh, individuals such as uh, Louis Brandeis, Louis Lipsky and Stephen Wise were major leading figures uh, who acquiesced to American politics, uh, American politicians, and major leading figures in the areas of media and university, uh, in, in which they persuaded with complete backing, by the way, from the Christian evangelicals to further cement the relationship between the newly birthed. Zion, the state of Israel, and the major superpower, uh, the United States. It would become a dual partnership that would have tentative beginning. Uh, thus, a leading Zionist organization, which, given its rise, the Zionist Organization of America, or, or ZOA, uh, which began in 1897, was now the face of the Zionist Israelis inside the country, and it depended on the most, um, especially for its military and financial needs. Israel at that time was not a, um, a formidable military superpower, and it did not generate enough money to become a financial power. However, the nature of this ideology, Zionism, would become far too dependent on its own wants rather than what it actually needed from the United States. The FBI began an investigation into ZOA under the 1938 Foreign Agents Registration Act. This is due to the organization's uh, solicitation of supporters from the Christian, that's the Evangelicals and, and Jewish State of Israel, 
which were to accelerate technology transfers to Jews in Palestine. And in 1948, the State Department under Harry Truman forced the Zionist Organization of America to, re to register under as a foreign agent. Uh, the first formula of years of ZOA were primarily a, a liberal entity. Uh, but this would radically change in the next 15 to 20 years and become a nationalist uh, extreme right-wing entity. They would not be the only entity that would espouse nationalist ideals. But we'll get to that in a minute. In time, many different smaller Zionist organizations became apparent in every public and private facet of politics, media, and banking, the key areas of governing any country is through their politics, through their media, and through their banking. Because if you could control those areas, you could control every facet of the country. In influential figures from these uh, Zionist organizations, like the ZOA or the American Zionist movement or the Nefesh Benefesh and the Merkaz USA. And of course, the more notable and more pronounced uh, organization, which is the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, or I'll just use in short APAC which would specifically cater to the American political spectrum of all parties. They did not concentrate on a specific. This would be key in influencing foreign policy regarding Israel. They did not really much care for foreign policy of the United States, which makes APAC a very unique organization in its own right, that it's the only organization inside the United States, which caters to all of the elected officials inside the host country while directing its, directing that influence to its own uh, policies. But behind the scenes is likened to a growing cancer cell, the Israeli spies uh, which long hindered the American public and private sectors. And this would be key because even though that the Israeli, as well as the United States, consider each other mutual allies, it is Israel which doesn't trust the host country in which it owes its allegiance and existence to. But if you're a country which is surrounded by Arab countries, of course, the right thing to do would be to infiltrate your adversaries and allies through the use of spying, covert spying, to get an understanding of how you view said country. Spying into White House activities all the way down to monitoring American popular opinion 
of Israel in such areas like universities, corporate offices and workplaces, and even in law enforcement centers. Israeli spying inside the United States is a taboo of sorts, even from local federal agencies, which were never permitted to speak about its existence, even within their own circles. More notably, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as the Department of Justice. One of the most egregious cases of espionage that included Israel was in the case of uh, Jonathan Pollack, who just made the news as of the last couple of days about um, him being released out on parole. Pollard was born in Galveston, Texas, to a Jewish family, and seemingly um, became an ardent supporter of, his, of Israel as he became aware of his family's ordeals uh, during the Holocaust and World War II. Pollard, who applied to become an intelligence officer in the CIA, in which he was turned down, became a Navy field intelligence officer in 1979. But the key period would be 1984, in which he became acquainted with Avium Sella, who was a combat veteran within the Israeli Air Force and who participated in both the 1967 Arab-Israeli Six-Day War and the 1982 Lebanon War. And Pollard left to take a sabbatical inside the, well, it was Sella who left to take a sabbatical inside the United States in 1983. And he took a course on computer science at NYU. Pollard, who had met Sella um, in this time frame, told Sella that he worked for U.S. Naval Intelligence and told him about specific incidents, incidents where U.S. intelligence was withholding information from Israel and he offered to work as a spy. It was a relationship which provided Sela with remarkably sensitive and classified data in which Pollard stole from naval officers. In which you know, Pollard would in time have a handler for this information. And his name is Rafi Aitin. His last name is spelled E-I-T-A-N. And Aitin was a career intelligence officer who was positioned as chief of coordination uh, with the Shin Bet and the Mossad. It was later in 1984 where Aitin initialed an espionage operation inside the United States, and it became the leading figure in which he recruited Pollard through Sella. However, the Office of Naval Intelligence got wind of Paul's activity. In, in 2014, in an interview, I believe, with the Times of Israel, A-10 would affirm that not only did Israeli intelligence know about Paul, but so did Prime Minister Shimon Peres and Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin, in which he quotes, Quote, Shimon Peres and Defense Minister 
Yitzhak Rabin were aware of the spy's actions. Eitan, after some deliberation, responded, Of course. End quote. On June 3rd, 1986, Pollard pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to deliver national defense information to a foreign government. His sentence was quite damning. It was a life sentence from Judge Aubrey Robinson, Jr. And almost immediately after sentencing, the U.S. State Department would become flush with calls from major Israeli intelligence figures, not just in the military, but government offices over the years, uh, pressuring for Pollard's release. In 2002, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would actually visit Pollard in prison. During the Obama administration, it became apparent from both the Republican and Democratic parties that Pollard's release was at the forefront. That just goes to show you the power of the APAC lobby in which it holds over both of the major electoral, uh, major political um, fronts. On October 26, 2011, a bipartisan group of 18 is retired U.S. senators wrote to President Obama urging him to commute Pollard's prison sentence to time served. On July 28, 2015, Pollard would be requested parole through the granted accommodations from the U.S. Parole Commission Board. And in 2015, the Israeli Knesset, which is the, the Congressional District of Israel, would pass a bill which would, in essence, have the Israeli government fund Pollard's housing and medical expenses. But the bill was rescinded from passing in 2016. This instance of Israeli espionage would become rather a consistent routine, which would increasingly become more apparent in the 1990s. On May 5, 2000, J. Michael Waller and Paul M. Rodriguez, journalists from the now-defunct Insight magazine, wrote a very lengthy and damning article which brought to light the massive abuses of Israeli espionage. The in-depth report entitled FBI Probes Espionage at Clinton White House. Um... But the article went into full details just how proactive the Israeli Mossad was inside the United States, inside the most sensitive areas of government and law enforcement. The, the report, in which encompassed a 12-month investigation of both Waller and Rodriguez, in which the FBI had looked into allegations that implicated the Israeli government, had penetrated four White House telephone lines and was able to relay real-time conversations on those lines from a remote site outside the White House directly to Israel for listening and recording. Quite shocking when you look at it from the perspective that this is a noted, noted ally. 
that they would be so brazen to conduct covert espionage inside the country, not just inside, but right close up front to the most sensitive areas of government. The, the report also went into detail about how the Israeli Mossad had also monitored phone lines of certain unnamed officials who worked within the State Department, within the Pentagon, and even secret FBI phone lines. Astounding intelligence. Both Waller and Rodriguez said the FBI investigation had been launched in early 1997, when a local telephone company manager became suspicious of an Israeli employee of Amdocs, which was a uh, uh, an Israeli company that sold billing software to telephone companies. This remarkable revelation was, of course, not related to the American public. Not one news agency, not one, whether it be from the legacy media or any newspaper publications that would publish this the surreal criminal act which bordered on the absurd and the oblivious. The arrogance put forth by the Israeli intelligence apparatus which would deny these charges. However, more than two dozen U.S. intelligence, counterintelligence, law enforcement, and other officials have both told Waller and Rodriguez from Insight that the FBI believes Israel has intercepted telephone and modem communications on some of the most sensitive lines of the U.S. government on an ongoing basis for years. Nevertheless, independent sources did report the allegations in which Israeli and U.S. officials had to circumvent excuses to what, what had to happen inside the United States' own intelligence agencies. Now, Rodriguez would be later interviewed by the Washington report in which he, quote, we're perplexed that no one has followed up on the story. We think it's news by any stretch of the imagination. It is true that the FBI says that a portion of the investigation is closed, but the fact that a portion also is open makes it news. We will continue to pursue it. Meanwhile, it's gratifying that the Middle East press played it fair and square, end quote. Now, only the liberal Israeli publication, Haaretz, would give the inside report a fuller explanation uh, which most U.S. publications would shun. Quote, White House and FBI officials denied the allegations. They acknowledged that such an investigation into possible Israeli eavesdropping had been conducted and added that the file has not technically been closed yet. The file is categorized as inactive due to the severity of the allegations and the possibility that there may be further developments, end quote. And of course, the legacy media, as well as nationwide publications, major publications, uh, would not report on this issue because 
these publications would come under direct attack from not just Israeli pressure, but also from U.S. intelligence, U.S. congressional pressure, in which these major corporations that have a vested influence, financial influence, in these publications would be the conduit in influencing these publications not to run the story. The investigation was closed from leading FBI investigators at the behest of high-ranking officials from the State Department, all most likely from those favorable to Israel, of course. That's the obvious. The influences from APAC and other Israeli Zionist figures in the U.S. gained full attraction when the neoconservatives took power in 2000 under the George W. Bush presidency. Major neocon figures like Douglas Feist, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Warhawks, um, which became a more fitting term in explaining their agenda, which coincided with the uh, leading figures in the right-wing Likud party, which was led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The systematic abuse of spying in the United States, however, was unrelenting. In January of 2001, the Drug Enforcement Age Administration, the DEA, began to receive reports of Israeli art students attempting to penetrate several DEA field offices in the continental United States. This report drafted by the DA showed a massive Mossad operating ring, which were penetrating not just the offices of the DA, but also the FBI and the State Department, and also the homes of these officials as well. These incidents, which involved several other law enforcement and Department of Defense agencies, which, with context, made at other agencies' facilities and the residences of these employers. During the years between 2000 and 2002, Israeli Mossad agents posing as art students were going door-to-door -door at homes of officials and employees from the DEA, FBI, and Pentagon, clamoring to purchase mediocre art paintings. Nothing obscure, nothing expensive. Approximately 140 of these students were later detained and arrested by the FBI, who were all then deported back to Israel. The art students were basically following a, um, a modus operandi of sorts. They generally worked in teams, and they consisted of a driver, who was the team leader, and three or four subordinates. Now, the driver would drop the salespeople off at a given location and returned to pick them up some hours later. The sales pitches, though, were usually aggressive and at times even inquisitive to the people they were pitching to. According to an unnamed DEA official in his interview with Salon Magazine in 2002, quote, 
The females among them were invariably described as very attractive. Blondes in tight shorts or jeans. Real lookers, as one DEA agent put it to Salon. They were flirty, flipping their hair, looking at you, smiling. Hey, how are you? Let me show you this. Everything a woman would do if she wanted to get something out of you, end quote. Salon magazine also obtained information from guards at the Earl Cabell, Earl Cabell Federal Building in, in Dallas, whom found one Israeli art student wandering the halls with a floor plan of the site. A source has told Salon that similar incidents have occurred at sites uh, in cities like New York, Florida, states like New York and Florida, and six other states. And even more uh, worrisome, at 36 sensitive Department of Defense sites. In a related report from Anna Werner, a reporter based out of Houston 11 News, in which no official would talk to her on air about the Israeli art student story, she would rely on 11 News military and terrorism analyst Ron Hatchett for his take on the scenario described above. Hatchett would exclaim, what comes to my mind right away is that this is an obvious surveillance. This is not a bunch of kids selling artwork. The DEA report, which listed major Israeli cells operating in 13 different U.S. cities, was quite revealing. The Israeli cells were quite expansive and showed the lengths in which they would go to penetrate sensitive areas of U.S. government in both the public and private sector. Again, quoting from the released EA report in 2001, quote, The activities of these Israeli art students raised the suspicion of Office of Security Programs and other field offices when attempts were made to circumvent the access control systems at DEA offices, and when these individuals began to solicit their paintings at the homes of DEA employees. The nature of these individuals' conduct combined with intelligence information and historical information regarding past incidents involving Israeli organized crime leads the Office of Security Programs to believe the incidents may well be an organized intelligence gathering activity. It is believed by the Office of Security Programs that these incidents should not be the basis for any immediate concern or the safety and security of DEA personnel. However, employees should continue to exercise due caution in safeguarding information relating to DEA investigations or activities. DEA Orlando has developed the first drug nexus to this group. Telephone numbers obtained from an Israeli art student encountered at the Orlando DEA, which been linked to several ongoing DEA MDMA ecstasy investigations in Florida, California, Texas, and New York. The Orlando DEA has opened an investigation that is being coordinated with DEA headquarters. End quote. A massive, not just a massive espionage ring, but also a drug ring 
So there would be three rings inside the United States between the years 1996 to 2002, with the Israeli art student ring being the largest among them. With the DA, with the Israeli drug ring, uh, with drug funding comes black operations, as well as the Israeli moving systems companies, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Israeli officials would uh, soon begin to feel the backlash from those involved in the espionage ring, leading Yaffa Ben-Ari, who's spokesman for the uh, Israeli Foreign Office Ministry, to prepare uh, an immediate denial of the charges while declaring the report as nonsense, that Israel would openly spy on the United States. After the September 11th attacks, some would speculate that the Israeli art students were shadowing Arab militants from Hamas in states like Texas, New York, Florida, and uh, even California. The DEA report said most of the students questioned by American investigators acknowledged having served in units of the Israeli armed forces specializing in military intelligence, electronic signals interception, or explosive ordnance. All the while, Israeli youths, some whom were Mossad operatives, were employed within certain moving companies located in New York, New Jersey, and Florida, whom were closely monitoring members of the Hamburg cell, three of them being suspected pilots, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziad Jara. These moving companies Companies like Irving Moving Systems, Classic International Movers, Moishi Movers, White Glove Movers, which suddenly become at the forefront of the September 11th investigation headed by the FBI, which was uh, codenamed Pentbomb. In certain instances, it would later show that uh, some of the employees from Irving Moving Systems, which is located out of Weehawken, New Jersey, may have had foreknowledge of the event as they were seen celebrating the attacks of the North Tower at 8.43 a.m. And in two redacted reports from the FBI field report about the High Fivers, as they were codenamed, residents from the Doric Tower apartments located in Union City, New Jersey, witnessed a white van matching a... Irving Moving Systems van at 8.43 a.m. was seen in the parking lot of Dork Towers as early as 8 a.m. on the fateful day of September 11, 2001. Two eyewitnesses whose names are redacted in the report uh, were interviewed by FBI agents who are redacted in the report uh, who witnessed this van in the parking lot at 8 a.m. These individuals were later pulled over at 4.30 p.m. as a BOLO report, a Beyond the Lookout report, of that same van earlier in the day was seen on the New Jersey Turnpike. Officers from East Rutherford Police Department, one of them being Scott DiCarlo, 
detained the five men in the van, in which they were all detained for a total of 71 days. Paul Kurzberg, Savon Kurzberg, Omar Mamory, Oded Elner, and um, drawing a blank. Got the fifth name. Anyway, Paul Kurzberg was one of the five Israelis detained, refused to take a polygraph for, the, for 10 weeks, in which his lawyers then accepted to take part and failed in most of the questions uh, posed to him. The FBI would later try and get a second interview with uh, Irving's moving systems manager, Dominic Souter. And Souter immediately fled to Israel, basically leaving the company behind with months of storage undelivered to clients. However, only 2020, led by John Miller, would embark on a journalistic piece regarding the mystery of the five Israelis, who were later dubbed the Dancing Israelis by the American media. The story would also die in the line, so to speak, as par for the course, anything related to U.S.-Israeli criminality. There were other Israelis that were detained on 9-11, Two of them being Roy Barak and Modi Butbul, who were detained by Pennsylvania State Police, in which on September 11th and 12th they were detained, but they were uh, pulled over. But on September 12th they were detained only because the truck that they were driving, in which they claimed that they were going to a client out of state to Ohio in which Pennsylvania State Police contacted Dominic Souter and asked if there were any clients in which Souter claims that he found it strange because due to the previous day's events, the moving company would not have clients outside of the state of New Jersey. Pennsylvania State Police, as well as the FBI, interviewed Barack and Bupal and gave very generally vague and unresponsive answers at times regarding the nature of their business on September 12th regarding a client in which they couldn't name and couldn't tell you what the address was. It just so happens that the route that they were taking was a route that led to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 had crashed. Meanwhile, the United States-Israeli partnership continues to grow at exponential rates, which continue to have a general negative outlook at the geopolitical spectrum and also from an internal viewpoint. Can those who cater to the Zionist entities within Israel continue to be a friend to the United States while it commits repeated acts of espionage against our most sensitive areas of government? Or have they become a liability to the United States in general? Some agencies and adversaries would opine on the latter, while those emotionally invested to the self-determination of the Zionist agenda would commit to the former, even at the behest of being compliant 
to its criminality happening from within. The nature of Zionism is to protect and to defend a state, a nation state, just for Jews, in which I myself I'm not against. However, it is the lengths that they go to regarding conducting espionage inside the United States, conducting counterintelligence, such as the Irving moving systems, when they didn't inform the FBI or the State Department about what they were doing inside the United States. And when they were asked what they were doing in the United States, they didn't give an answer. And the answer that they did give is redacted by the FBI. Now you tell me which country has that kind of power. Saudi Arabia has a one of the oldest, if not the oldest lobby inside the United States, one of them, and also being the most financially lucrative doesn't have that type of power inside the United States only because the they, don't, they themselves don't have the means or the capability to conduct uh, counter-surveillance inside the United States. Yes, they do have spies. Yes, they do have very affluent lobbyists on behalf of the Saudi Kingdom, but they do not have the logistics or the capability to conduct espionage inside the United States as um, Israel does. And this is going to be a problem for our relationship in the future because through espionage and counterintelligence, they are able to even possess incriminating evidence against our congressional leaders from both the Republican Democratic parties as well as other parties involved. Even to the highest levels of government, the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, Speaker of the House. So at what price does the United States pay in order to be an ally to the nation state of Israel, which is governed by a very oppressive nationalist entity, which is Zionism. The future of both countries are at stake, as well as the victims of countries in the Middle East. And that is what's most important. Our foreign policy is being shaped on behalf of the Israeli lobby and the Zionist regime. And it's through this influence and affluence uh, which shapes our foreign policy in which it's quite detrimental 
not just to us as a people, but to the people in which we bomb and impose our will on in countries like Iraq, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, and the looming prospect of war with Iran, which in itself, these are the countries who once were prosperous under Arab nationalism or pan-Arabism, which was basically destroyed, not just by a civil uprising of the people, but also from the intelligence apparatuses like the Israeli Mossad, like the CIA, the Saudi General Intelligence Directory, the Makba. These countries which have a vested interest in controlling preconceived enemies inside the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And so we will end the episode on that matter. I am Madam Fitzgerald from the Darkened Hour. Thank you for tuning in and see you in the next episode.